What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey, everybody. Welcome again to Call to Communion on this um, solemnity. We'll talk about that in just a moment. This program is just for you if you are a non-Catholic. As a non-Catholic, you may be wondering, what is a solemnity? Well, we'll be talking about that and many other things in the next hour or so. If you have a question about the Catholic faith, we are here to get that question answered. Here's our phone number, 833-288. Excuse me, 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1-205-271-2985. And of course, uh, you can always send us an email 24-7. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer and uh, normally it's uh, Matt uh, Gaminski as our phone screener. Today it's going to be Rich Jesse. And also uh, Jeff Burson back with us today handling social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are here for you. Just put that question in the comments box, and then we will take it from there. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Tom, Anders. how are you today? I am great. I am blessed. How are you? I'm doing decent. Thank you. Big day around here at the network. today for is several uh, reasons. Multiple reasons. Number one, it is the solemnity of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. We can talk about that today. It's also the 42nd anniversary of the founding of EWTN. When we went on the air on television um, all those years ago, 1981, uh, we were on four hours a day, sharing time with another satellite, and um, it was a kind of slim pickings. Now, what was the famous line that Mother Angelica intoned when she flipped the switch and turned it on? Something along the lines of, Lord, may your eternal word shine yes. forth. What yes. was the quote? You're going to get it. I don't remember the exact quote, uh, but but we do have it on our website. And there's a, there, there's a lot to find out. If you're not familiar with EWTN and the history of the network, Mother Angelica, and uh, the founding of this network, she started it out with a, a little bitty garage and $200. And now here we are. We'll talk about that more in the uh, upcoming hour. I want to uh, start out today's program with a follow-up on something that happened on yesterday's program. We got an email from Rob in Oregon, who listens to us on Modern Day Radio. He says, Dear Tom and Dr. Anders, I have partial hearing loss. On yesterday's program, a caller expressed frustration at being unable to understand the gospel reading because of the heavy accent of the priest. You remember that? Oh, yeah. So he says, Rob says, there are missalettes available from many sources that show the readings and the prayers for every Mass. Also, an inexpensive option is to download Mass prayers and readings to your smartphone. This has been very helpful for an old Catholic guy like me. God bless, Rob in Oregon. Yeah, Rob, I really appreciate the comment, and you're absolutely <laughs> right. I, I know when I go to Mass, I, I very often, almost always, uh, make use of the missalette, even though I, I can understand the, the, the priest or, sure. the, or the deacon who's intoning the gospel. I still like to read along, and 
the more ports of entry, the, the the better the retention, the more I can concentrate on what's being said. So I always use that. Um, now, to the point that the earlier caller made, he, he wanted to know if it, he was right to feel um, a little put out uh-huh. that he couldn't understand the yeah. celebrant of the Mass. And, and my point was, well, yeah, I mean, all things being equal, we, we, we do want the priest to be able to express the gospel with clarity. And, sure. Uh, but sometimes we're you know up against the exigencies of the priest shortage in a particular diocese, and we have no choice but to rely on extern clergy that maybe don't always have the best English. Well, it's good to have those other resources there for sure. And Rob in Oregon, thanks for checking in. Glad you're listening to us on Modern Day Radio. Here's a call that came in uh, overnight last night on the EWTN listener comment line. My name's Tim Longmont, Colorado. At the beginning of Mass, uh, our parish invites everyone to greet each other in the name of our Lord. Of course, I don't want to turn around and say, hello, Jesus. So what does that really mean? Thank you. Yeah, thanks. So I think what's intended here is that as Catholics who gather for Mass, we're members of the body of Christ. And so I, you know, I can greet you as, as Tim from Longmont. That's perfectly appropriate. But I could also greet you as Tim, a fellow Christian, a member of the body of Christ. And that there's a, an added layer of commonality there. Uh, beyond our shared humanity, and that's that's not nothing. That's not negligible. One of the things that belief in baptism does for us is causes us to be adopted supernaturally into a new family, and that's the body of Christ, which is the Catholic Church. Yes, indeed. Appreciate that, and thank you so much uh, for checking in on the listener comment line. Our producer, uh, Charles Beery, uh, pulled up that uh, prayer that Mother Angelica launched EWTN with all those years ago. O God, Lord of heaven and earth, you alone have accomplished all we have done. May this first Catholic satellite television network be a tribute to the beauty of your church. May your Son, the Eternal Word, be glorified through this great work of your hands. Bless all the programs that will issue forth from its facilities, just as your Word issues forth from you, Lord Father. May that same Word touch each heart that listens to this network. Let thy Spirit work with freedom through every teacher who proclaims thy truth and thy church. Bestow upon this network the power to inspire men to seek holiness of heart, zeal for the extension of thy church, courage to seek after justice and human rights, and the patience to endure persecution. May thy paternal blessing always rest upon it. Amen. Fantastic. You know, I I was listening to the words of the prayer, very encouraged, but I also took note that she identified it as a satellite network. Yeah. And I thought, well... We still have those satellite dishes outside, yes. but now, of course, it's satellite and internet and shortwave and cable and various other media, yeah. pretty much anywhere we can get the word out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're going to take a break in a moment here. After the break, I'm going to talk about some of those various uh, media uh, because uh, you know this was something that Mother always said, and I, I remember this. Uh, back in the early days, I reported directly to Mother, and she would say, Honey, we've got to be where the people are. So if a new platform like Facebook or YouTube pops up, then we need to be there, if at all possible. And so from that day until today and well into the future, that's going to be what we're going to do. In a moment, we'll be talking with Melissa in Topeka, Kansas. We've got lines open for you as well here on this very special day, 833 833- 288 EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this beautiful solemnity of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary on EWTN. 
call to communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN if you have a question about the Catholic faith. 833-288-3986. I want to take just a quick moment here before we get to the phones to talk about some of those platforms that EWTN is blessed to bring you the good news. And I won't go over the whole list because it'll take up the rest of the show. You know, many people think that uh, EWTN is a TV network. Well, that's true, but it's actually 11 TV networks, 11 global channels. You know, we have a channel that just goes to Great Britain. We have a channel that just goes to Canada. And, you know, on and on and on. Numerous regional and national broadcasts, multiple languages, 24 hours a day, to over 400 million television households in more than 160 countries and territories. Here on the radio side, over 600 domestic and international AM and FM radio affiliates. Of course, uh, Sirius XM satellite radio web streaming, uh, our entree into radio, our WE. EWN shortwave service, and of course, uh, EWTN.com, one of the most visited Catholic websites in the U.S. We have electronic and print news services, the National Catholic Register, Catholic News Agency. I'm actually skipping over things uh, just, be, you know, because it's such a long list. Podcast Central that we launched uh, last year, the best of EWTN, uh, religious catalog, uh, numerous TV and radio news programs, including The World Over, News in Depth, Pro-Life Weekly, News Nightly, Thank you, Mother Angelica. Please pray for us. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Melissa in Topeka, Kansas, listening on Ave Maria Radio. Hey, Melissa, what's on your mind today? Hey, Dr. David Andrews. How are you? I'm all right. Thanks. How about you? I'm doing all right. I just had an incident happen this morning having to do with our religion, and I have a question for you. Okay. Okay, it was pretty huge, and now that I'm thinking about it and asking you, I'm thinking how big it really was. Um, A friend of ours in the neighborhood was over, and when my husband stepped into the house, he confronted me. He said, I know that you're very religious, but I do not ever want you to bring up religion to me, or I will never speak to you again. And then he got quiet. And then he looked for my reaction, and I said, well, I never will. And then we dropped it, and then he left. (laughs) It was was quite something. Wow. Yeah, well, obviously this fellow has... um uh, has had some bad experiences, I think is the way to put it. Yeah. And and perhaps the, all the religious people that he has known have been interested primarily in proselytizing him, um, and he feels like uh, to them he is an object, maybe like a mark, and not like a human being with his own with his own personhood. Mm, yeah. And I I understand that I understand that point of view because before I was Catholic, I was raised in a tradition that really taught me to think about people this way. That if I had a contact with any human being that was outside of my church, that uh, I had this tremendous burden of guilt on my on my shoulders if I didn't try to quote unquote win them to Jesus, uh, which really meant converting them to our way of looking at the Christian mm, faith. Yeah. And that if I had left an encounter without "Quote unquote witnessing for the Lord that I had that I'd done something gravely wrong, and it it really it was kind of like being an Amway salesman all the time. You know, <laughs> it, it it made it impossible for me to see people for who they are. I could only see them as objects of conversion, 
and that's dehumanizing, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's what Christ did. And I know for a fact it's not what someone like Mother Teresa did. And when I look at the fruit of Mother Teresa's ministry, she definitely was a motive for many people to become Catholic. And she did it by very conspicuously not proselytizing, yeah. right? I mean, she, she was not out there trying to coerce people to become Catholic. She was out there to treat them with the love and dignity that she felt like uh, she owed to Christ himself. And she saw Jesus in the persons of the poor and tried to meet their material and emotional and spiritual needs without actually proselytizing mm-hmm. them. And there's a way to evangelize, there's a way to present Christ to the world mm-hmm. uh, without making the world feel like you would look down on them for not being Catholic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a there's a line, I was just thinking about this, I was reading your call, um, in that very controversial novel, The Catcher in the Rye, when Holden Caulfield meets a friend, a new friend at school, mm-hmm. and uh, and they're chatting about this and that, and the kid says, uh, well, do you know where the, did you notice where the nearest Catholic church was? And Caulfield feels like this is uh, disingenuous, that he really doesn't want a, a instruction in where to find the local Catholic church. He's fishing to find out if Holden Caulfield's a Catholic. Mm. And it, it vitiated the relationship for him. You know, he felt like, uh, up until now, we were getting all these human beings. Uh-huh. Now, all of a sudden, I realize that I'm just an object to him. I'm just a mark. And I, I understand that sentiment. I've been on the giving and the receiving side of that. And I think my, this probably this fellow probably had that kind of an experience with religious people, and so he's very suspicious of that. So what you do is you put the lie to that expectation, right? And you demonstrate in your silence and your charity and your love uh, that you can witness Christ to him without mm-hmm. ever opening your mouth about it. Yeah. Is that helpful for you, Melissa? That is. And just the main thing is just to be indirect about it, like we always have been. We've never brought it up to him, but he specifically asked me, just point blank, said, do not talk about it. Yeah. And we were talking about politics a little bit, too, and he categorized both of them together. And I said, oh, that's that's fine. You know, I just agree with him and, yeah. you know, just agree to disagree. And then we're very, very, uh, we're not pushy at all. And uh, we're just going to keep doing that. Okay. I I think that's the right thing to do. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It is a call to communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. Let's go to uh, Richie now. Richie is in uh, Westport, Connecticut, listening on JMJ Catholic Radio. Hey, Richie, what's on your mind today? How you doing? Um, So I left the church years ago. And I get a lot of pushback from friends and uh, some family members about going back. Uh, but it's very difficult for me to do that. Um, yeah. Um, I heard, like, the, the radio stations calling for, you know, people that are non-Catholic. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I just uh, I have a lot of issues with, with some of the things that go on. And uh, I don't know. It's, it's very difficult for me to even consider to try to go back um, to the church. Yeah, I, I, I can appreciate that. I mean, you're not alone, to be sure. I mean, I, I've, I've been both in the church and out of the church, and on both sides of that divide, I've, I've met people who had really terrible experiences as Catholics at the hands of priests or other Catholic people or, mm. uh, you know, all kinds of challenges. Uh, many of them they found to be quite traumatic, 
and just the thought of contemplating the Catholic Church or any any sort of Catholic accoutrement, maybe the sight of even a rosary might send them into a kind of a PTSD, mm. uh, you know, flashback. And and I mean, of course, the Catholic Church is not unique in that way. People can have those kind of responses to all kinds of circumstances that can be traumatic. And I'm I'm deeply sympathetic. So you know, uh, if I'm in relationship with somebody who has that kind of experience with Catholicism. My objective as a human being is to, well, not be someone that's going to traumatize them. Yeah. Right. You know, and and from my perspective as a Catholic, there is a beautiful teaching of Catholic moral theology called gradualism. Gradualism means uh, that you know if you can take any step in the direction of truth, goodness, or beauty, any step in the direction of virtue any step closer to God, it's a step worth taking, mm-hmm. you know. There, there are some Christian traditions that speak as though, uh, you know, salvation is, a, is a, a hard black line drawn in the sand between two states of life that are evident, you know, and that I know if you're on one side of the line or the other, and my goal is to get you across the line. That, that's really not the way Catholics think about it. We, we think the question of heaven and hell— judgment. Uh, These things are up to God to decide, and from our perspective, uh, the life of virtue, the life of grace is is very graduated, and, uh, you know, sin differs from sin in severity. Grace differs from grace in uh, in intensity. Everybody's life situation is different. Our job, my job as a Catholic, is just to try to be loving and try to be Christ's presence to as many people as possible— help them in any way that I can help them. And, you know, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, her, her view was if, if she could help a Hindu become a better Hindu, then she was a better Catholic for it. If she could help an atheist become a better atheist, then she was a better Catholic for it. And she really mm-hmm. left the question of the judgment of souls up to God, recognizing that everybody's individual situation is unique, and people have impediments and burdens and struggles that, that no one else has, and we have to be profoundly sympathetic to that. I, I, I see a lot of that same disposition in our current Holy Father, Pope Francis, who, uh, whose watchword, really, for ministry is what he calls accompaniment, which is nothing more than actually listening to and attending to the people that you're in relationship with to find mm-hmm. out where they are, knowing that their situation is different from yours. Right. Yeah. And uh, and there may be hangups, impediments in their life to practicing the Catholic faith that, that you don't have, that I don't have. And we have to be sensitive to those. And I mean, that's that's the objective. So, you know, if there's any way I can help you, I'd be happy to do it. I mean, I'm here to answer questions about the Catholic Church and the best of my ability, express what the church teaches and try to be that listening person. Yeah. Um, but uh, but look, if you had a bad experience, I mean, I'm profoundly sorry. And my heart goes out to you. I've had bad experiences, some of them traumatic, some of them still haunt me, both in and out of the church. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, we're all human beings at the end of the day. Well, circling back to what you said about uh, gradualism, one gradual way for Richie might be to just continue to listen to this radio station. Absolutely. You know, because you're going to get the inside, the inside deal. This is what the church actually teaches. Consider us a friend, Richie. Absolutely. Thanks for your call, Richie. Hope you call back another time. Call to communion here on EWTN. Full phones today. Let's go to uh, Betty in Quincy, Illinois, listening on Covenant Radio. Hello, Betty. What's on your mind today? Yes. Good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I was visiting with a friend the other night who belongs to a non-denominational Christian church, Mm -hmm. and she said it was her understanding that um, when they received the bread and wine at their church service, that that was also the body and blood of our Lord. 
And I was trying to kind of explain to her how Protestants do not have the, I didn't use the word authority, but, you know, like, what were they doing that caused that transubstantiation to happen? And I really couldn't, didn't have a lot of information to share with her on that. Um, Can you provide me with some resources that might help her, other than church teaching, which she's probably not going to be interested in. Right, uh, right. Yeah, definitely. I appreciate the question. So the, um, the the Catholic position on this, you you really do have to rely on the tradition of the Church in addition to sacred Scripture, because it's a question that Scripture is not very explicit on. Uh, there are hints in Scripture. So here, here's the scriptural case, but it, it's not sufficient to persuade someone who is a Bible-alone Christian. Um, when Christ instituted the Mass— when he instituted the sacrifice of the Eucharist, it was in the, the upper room on Holy Thursday, and his disciples were with him, and he said to them, to those that were gathered, do this in memory of me. And according to the teaching of the Church, this is when he not only institutes the Eucharist, but also the order of the priesthood. And that, that authority and that command, that obligation to offer the sacrifice of the Eucharist was given to those to those. 11 or 12. We actually don't know if Judas was there for the communion or not. We don't know that. Um, so those 11 or 12. Okay. And they, in turn, uh, Christ commissioned to hand that power and authority on to others. So Matthew 28, he said, go into all nations and make disciples and teach them everything I've commanded you, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. Uh, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a commission given to the apostles, not to everybody, but to the apostles. Mm-hmm. Whoever hears you, hears me. Uh, he said in John chapter 20, whoever sends you forgive are forgiven. Here, receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, when you read the pastoral epistles, St. Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus, it's very clear that he has succession in mind. He, he says, you know, the reason I left you in Crete, Titus, was so that you could appoint others to this sacred ministry mm. and hand on what you have received and so forth and so on. So there's very much an idea of a succession of authority from Christ to the apostles, to the apostles to their successors. And then that that what is implicit, I think, in Scripture becomes very explicit once you get into the second century. So you read the Church Fathers, Ignatius of Antioch, for example, is incredibly clear about the the process and the nature of apostolic succession, that Christ sent the apostles, and the apostles sent their successors, the bishops, and no Eucharist is valid unless it's celebrated uh, in in association with the bishop who has, who has that succession from the apostles. You find that explicitly taught and see, and, and, and Ignatius is the third bishop after Saint Peter in Antioch. I mean, we're really, really close Way to back. the really close to the origins, mm-hmm. and you find it in other second-century fathers like Irenaeus and Christian writers like Tertullian and so forth. So that, that's that's been the position from the beginning. Um, now, um, if you are a Bible-only Protestant, you're going to reject all that second-century literature, which I mean strikes me as kind of mad because I mean it's not like the Bible fell from Earth and then the second the ink dried on the page, everybody forgot what it said and invented something new. You know, like second century Christianity had to come from somewhere. It came from first century Christianity, yep, right? Yep, yep. You know, but but there are primitivists who who reject that idea, and uh, and so they're gonna they're gonna propose a different reading of the text and have their own way of understanding apostolic authority. Um, and with them, you know, there's not a lot you can do arguing. Um, it's interesting to me. I mean, there are Protestants that believe in the doctrine of the real presence. Um, typically, they are Lutherans, they are Anglicans, 
and and some versions of Presbyterian. Oh. Those, those are typically the Protestant groups that believe in some account of the real presence. Um, your your independent Christian church types, as you described your neighbor, generally are not, right? Unless they're Congregationalists, in which case they may have some connection to the Calvinist tradition. Appreciate your call, Betty. In a moment, we'll be uh, going to Susan in Rapid City, South Dakota. Also, Keith in Alexandria, Virginia. Daniel in St. Louis. Uh, Heavy phones today, but at this moment, at this exact moment in time, we have two lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion. Stay with us. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Glad you're with us on this Tuesday as we uh, celebrate this uh, solemnity, the solemnity of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. It is a big day here at the network. 42 years ago was the founding of EWTN. From that day to this, we are blessed to bring you the good news each and every day. Hey, congratulations going out to two more members of the EWTN radio family, St. Rose Radio, up the, up the street a little bit here in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, celebrating their seventh year with us. Also, Divine Mercy Radio in Warland, Wyoming, marking nine years with EWTN. Congratulations to Richard Richard and uh, also Billy at WSRR and Father Bryce Lundgren at KXDM from all of us here at EWTN Radio. All right, back to the phones right now at 833-288-EWTN. Let us go to uh, Keith in Alexandria, Virginia, listening on Divine Mercy Radio. Keith, what's on your mind today? Hi, uh, thank you for taking the call, and sure. uh, happy uh, solemnity. Thank you. Uh, in the Mass readings today in the, in the Corinthians, the Epistle to the Corinthians, uh, Paul, St. Paul talks about um, Jesus' resurrection being the first fruits, and uh, the death being the last enemy to be uh, to be defeated. Um, growing up evangelical Protestant, that always was seemed to be depicted to me as a as a future reality um, that someday we'll get to that to that point. But reading it today, and, and maybe just in the context of the assumption, it struck me as as if St. Paul were talking about a present reality, and so I wonder. Um, you know what, what your thoughts are on that. Is it is it an already or is it not a not yet sort of thing uh, he's yeah. talking about? Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate the question. So you you said you grew up evangelical Protestant. I wonder if you read many evangelical Protestants have read or had this book read to them when they were children. C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Did you ever encounter that book or maybe see the movie? I encountered it when I had kids of my own, but I didn't growing up, no. Okay, but you're familiar with the storyline. Well, you remember the climax of the book is when Aslan, who is clearly the stand-in for Jesus in the narrative, confronts the White Witch, and uh, she believes that he ha- she has a claim on Edmund's life, that she has the right to kill him, and Aslan negotiates with her uh, that she can kill him instead— and, uh, and Edmund goes free, and she thinks that's a great deal. She gets to put to death her, her, her ancient enemy, Aslan, so she agrees to the transaction. Edmund goes free. She, uh, she executes Aslan ignominiously, and unbeknownst to her, there's a power greater than death at work, and Aslan comes back to life and then basically rips her to shreds. Okay? Um, it always uh, has struck me as ironic and interesting that this view of the death and resurrection of Christ presented in this children's narrative by C.S. Lewis stands in such stark contrast 
to the actual teaching of most evangelical churches about the nature of the atonement, right? Because most evangelical Protestant churches view the death of Christ as a transaction between Christ and the Father, in which God the Father punishes the Son for sins that the Son did not commit, which Catholics reject that view, by the way, because it makes God unjust. Um, but C.S. Lewis here presents it as a transaction, effectively, between Christ and Satan. Turns out Lewis's view, uh, which has been called the Christus Victor view of the atonement, name assigned by, uh -huh. uh, uh, by um, Gustav Olein, Swedish theologian, turns out to be the more ancient view. And the, one of the earliest theories of the atonement in the Christian tradition is the idea that by his death on the cross, Jesus defeated Satan. In some accounts, he tricked him. The way, Lewis, the way Lewis has Aslan tricking the White Witch. In others, he just, he just defeats him. He goes to the realm of the dead and beats up on Satan. Um, or he beats up on death as a personification. Mm. Right? That the, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus is this direct confrontation with the powers of evil, um, sin and death being two of them, uh, and that he triumphs over them by his victory on the cross. And there's this kind of language is scattered haphazardly throughout all of the New Testament. You'll find all these sort of martial metaphors in the Bible um, of Christ leading captives in train, you know, and this kind of thing. And so this is a, this is a major part of the tradition. And the way it gets developed theologically, um, the Father's note uh, that uh, First Peter talks about Christ uh, preaching to the spirits that are in prison, for example, is one of many passages. The idea that by his descent to the dead, um, Christ sojourned among the dead and preached the gospel to the righteous dead of the old covenant who were mm -hmm. waiting for the coming of the Messiah. Mm -hmm. um, and so there really is uh, a victory that Christ has over the realm of the dead. He, it's the harrowing of hell. That's the, that's the terminology for it. And, uh, and so it's both a present reality in that the power of death and sin and hell and the devil are defeated by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but also a future reality as we look forward to the culmination of these things and the return of Christ and the resurrection from the dead and the renewal of all things in glory. Keith, thank you so much for your call. Here is Daniel in St. Louis listening online, EWTN.com. Hey, Daniel, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, Dr. David Andrews, big fan of the show. I'm uh, just going to ask you a quick question here. If selling of organs is uh, immoral, according to the Church, then why are we able to sell plasma, or are we able to sell plasma? What is the Church's view on selling plasma? Okay, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, um, you know, I, I, I'll tell you right off the bat that I'm not an expert in Catholic bioethics, and so I haven't read every position paper on every possible permutation. And so the answer I'm going to give you is, uh, is my intuition and should be taken with a grain of salt, and maybe formaldehyde, <laughs> right? I mean, so this is not gospel truth. This is me trying to make sense just using my intuition about what I know from Catholic moral principles. And, and a, a, somebody better schooled in bioethics might give a better answer. Um, you know, organ harvesting from the living, right? And, and we, this does go on. Right. I mean, there are people who are who are trafficked and, you know, even children who have been born into captivity and raised to have their organs harvested uh, or those who who might, you know, uh, well, they're being exploited in some way, basically, is the yes. idea. Yes. Um, well, I mean, you kind of need your organs. 
you got to have them. If you don't have them, you're totally, I mean, you're, this is very destructive for the human person and terribly dehumanizing, particularly if you're in some sort of traffic situation, yep. or even if you're just driven to it by necessity and desperation and penury. Mm -hmm. um, that would be terribly dehumanizing. And the church is about human dignity. Um, if I if I donate blood, I mean, the Knights of Columbus come by my parish, you know, every so often, they, you know, stick a noodle in my arm and take a pint of blood to go save lives. I can do without a pint of blood. Me in the too. same way yeah, I can yeah. I can do without you know I can do without whatever the unit of plasma is for some period of time. It's not there's no indignity done to me as a human being, and so, so definitely not destructive of my biology or the functioning of my organs or anything sure. like that. Um, you know I think there are particular situations where you know if I were a pastor uh, trying to help somebody and I saw that they were say uh, habitually selling their plasma, well. I mean, there's kind of a stigma attached to that. Some people get themselves in life situations where they don't have any other way to make a living, and they're really kind of at the edge of desperation. You know, rather than criticizing them for selling their plasma, I'd want to ask the question, okay, why have they been driven to these extremities? You know, what yes. is it about their life, their circumstances? Maybe maybe something's been imposed upon them. Maybe there's no, no fault of their own. They're suffering some ma uh, major disability. Uh, you know, what is their situation that I might be able to help? Maybe they've made lifestyle choices that have yeah. brought them to this position. How can I help the, under, under the, the dignity of the person underlying this? And I'm not going to condemn them for, you know, their desperate plight, but how can I help them out of it? Daniel, thanks so much for your call. Wayne is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Wayne says, much blessings. I am not a Catholic. May I give my reasons? The doctrines of papal infallibility, veneration of saints, and transubstantiation are all in direct contradiction of the Bible. We must test everything against the Bible. It says so in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Yeah, I find this just an absolutely fascinating objection. And uh, we can get to the questions of papal infallibility, the veneration of saints, and transubstantiation, and, and I'll get to those in a minute. Mm -hmm. But much more interesting to me is the claim that we should test everything against the Bible, and that that is the teaching of 2 Timothy 3.16. Right? That's really interesting to me. So I'd like to start with that. Let's start with the teaching of 2 Timothy 3.16. First of all, in 2 Timothy 3.16, the writer of the epistle tells Timothy that the scriptures that he has known from childhood are profitable for salvation, for teaching, training, rebuke, and uh, training in righteousness, so that the, the, the man of God can be equipped for every good work. Yeah. Okay, that's, what, that's what Paul says. Nothing in there about testing all doctrines against that standard to, be, to begin with. But um, more interesting to me is these are the scriptures that Timothy knew from childhood. What scriptures did Timothy know from childhood? Clearly not 2 Timothy 3.16. That's right. Timothy did not grow up reading Paul's uh, <laughs> uh, second letter, right? Yeah. He, he grew up with, more, more than probably, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, right? So that, that's clearly what t 2 Timothy is referring to, that, right. that portion, that, can that canonical Old Testament scripture. Um, which I might add concludes seven books that the Catholic Church venerates that most Protestants do not, right? the Deuterocanonical texts, which endorse, among other things, uh, the veneration of saints and the doctrine of purgatory, uh, you know, among many other doctrines. Mm -hmm. um, so, so how are you going to get to your quotation of 2 Timothy 3.16? Like, if you're asserting this as Scripture, well, this is Scripture. I'm quoting the Bible. 
well, how do you know that 2 Timothy belongs in the Bible? I mean, I'm sure you're aware that most modern critical scholars do not believe that Paul wrote 2 Timothy. They don't, all right? So you, just the, the bare letter of the text isn't enough for you to assert its apostolic authority or its canonicity. How do you get to that claim? Jesus never mentioned 2 Timothy 3.16 or the book of 2 Timothy. Never mentioned it. No other apostle that we know of ever mentioned 2 Timothy. Arguably, Paul never mentioned 2 Timothy, if you think the critical scholars are right, and I would, you know, burden of proof to whether they are or they're not. Um, and Paul himself never mentioned 2 Timothy regarding, or the author of 2 Timothy, never suggested that 2 Timothy was somehow a rule of faith against which all doctrines should be tested. He was referring to the Septuagint of the Old Testament. So how do you arrive at the judgment that 2 Timothy is inspired scripture and canonical? I'll tell you how you arrive at that judgment. The sacred tradition of the Catholic Church declares that 2 Timothy is inspired scripture and canonical. That's how you get there. The reason 2 Timothy is in your Bible is Catholic tradition put it there. So if you reject Catholic tradition, then you really have no grounds for even citing 2 Timothy, because we only know 2 Timothy through Catholic tradition. Right. But what does the Bible itself, what does Jesus himself actually say about this question? How do, against what standard do we test doctrine, practice, claims to what is true Christianity? Well, when Jesus made provision for handing on the Christian faith, he never mentioned anything about 2 Timothy. For that matter, he never mentioned anything about the complete canon of the Bible. What he said instead was to 11 guys, he said, go into all nations and make disciples and teach everything I've commanded you and I'll be with you to the end of the age. It's Matthew 28. Christ sent authorized individuals with a promise of divine assistance with the charge to teach his oral tradition everything I've commanded you. Jesus didn't write anything down. It was oral tradition. I'll be with you to the end of the age. Whoever hears you, hears me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. Whoever sins you forgive are forgiven. Whoever sins you retain are retained. When we actually look to the teaching of Christ, the standard that he gave for determining Christian orthodoxy was sacred tradition and the teaching authority of the church. No mention of the New Testament canon of the Bible, which we can arrive at only after the fact through sacred tradition. Mm -hmm. So I think the principle that you suggest, we have to test all doctrines against Scripture, is not itself a scriptural doctrine. Let's test that against Scripture. Does the Bible say test everything against the Bible? It does not. So it fails the test. But now let's go to your other question. Can we, in fact, derive transubstantiation, the veneration of saints, the infallibility of the Church? Can we derive these things from the Bible? Now I say we don't have to, because the Bible is not our rule of faith. But lo and behold, we can anyway. Right? We can meet the standard. Um, let's start with the infallibility of the church and the infallibility of the Pope. Christ, we just said, Christ told the apostles, go into all nations and make disciples and teach. I'll be with you to the end of the age. That's a promise of divine assistance. Every place in Scripture we find that phrase, I will be with you. Like when God tells Moses, I will be with you. Moses says, hey, don't send me out there if you're not with me. Don't worry, Moses, I'm with you. Every place we find that phrase, it refers to a promise of divine assistance. For what purpose? Why was God assisting them in the proclamation of Christ's teaching? Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Whoever hears you hears me. 
The doctrine of infallibility is implicit in Jesus' promise to the church that he will accompany them in the teaching of the gospel. That's the way the thing is understood. Um, how about the Pope specifically? Thou art Peter. Upon this rock I'll build my church. I give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What have you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What have you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Three metaphors. Peter is the rock foundation of the church's unity. He possesses the keys. That's a reference to Isaiah 22. This is an executive position. This is a prime ministerial position in the kingdom of God. What you open, no one can shut. What you shut, no one can open. Uh, and this power of binding and loosing to, to admit, to exclude, to, to approve or disapprove. Right? That's, that's the power of St. Peter, which, according to sacred tradition, passes to his successors, the popes. Yeah. Um, what about the veneration of saints? Well, um, uh, take a look at 2 Kings chapter 13. That's, that's in the Hebrew canon of the Bible. When the relics of the prophet Elisha bring a dead man back to life. Look at Acts chapter 19, when the third-class relics of the apostles heal the sick and raise the dead. Look at, uh, in the Deuterocanon, Second uh, Maccabees chapter 15, when the prophet Jeremiah prays and intercedes on behalf of the church on earth. Look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, or Revelation 8, verse 3, where the saints and angels in heaven are shown to offer our prayers before the throne of God. Um, look at Romans chapter 13, where Paul says that we have to render to each one what is his due, honor to whom honor, custom to whom custom. And so the veneration of saints, if veneration just simply means to honor them, which is what it means, right? Well, we honor them for their holiness, for their overcoming lives. That's appropriate. That's mm -hmm. just that we should do so in the same way that I would even honor a sports hero for crying out loud you know he, <laughs> he won the heisman trophy that's honorable you know in his own domain we respect that we sure put up a trophy you know erect a statue a monument that's honoring um uh, how much more so uh, those who have well, uh, run the race and won the crown of life we should honor them yes recognize their accomplishments and that they pray and intercede and offer our prayers to god is deeply scriptural in addition to being quite traditional uh what was the third one we had oh transubstantiation Transubstan yeah, yeah yeah so um that Christ is truly present in the Blessed Sacrament, body, blood, soul, and divinity, Jesus himself teaches us in John chapter 6 when he says that my flesh is true food, my blood is real drink, and whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has life. So the burden of proof is on the person who denies that Jesus said what he meant and meant what he said. Yeah, Wayne, thanks so much uh, for checking in today. Glad you're watching us on YouTube. It's called a communion here on EWTN. <clears throat> Be sure to join us tomorrow for More to Life with Dr. Greg and Lisa Popcheck tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN. Tomorrow's program is conflict giving you a bumpy ride. Dr. Greg and Lisa help you have a more peaceful journey. That's tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN radio. We're going to try to get to all these calls. Here is Susan in Rapid City listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Hey, Susan, what's on your mind today? Hi. Um, I have a friend that was just diagnosed with um, terminal cancer, three months to live. Um, they have already made plans to go to a different state to sign up for the dignity of life because she's spent, the quote, dignity of life, um, spent too many years seeing um, family members and friends suffer from pain and she's so scared and I just I mean I was so caught off guard I didn't even know how to respond and I just need some advice on you know explaining that's not really dignity of life to um, go through euthanasia so what's what's your advice 
Wow, this is really tough. Yeah. And it's tough for a lot of reasons, one of which is that I don't know the neighbor and I don't have any relationship to this person. And so, you know, the, the extent of my intervention is going to depend on the basically the right that I've earned through friendship to speak my mind. And that's that's something that you've got to discern that I can't discern for you. Um, but I would hope if it was somebody that I was close to that I could persuade them that, you know, their life is worth more to the world, to their neighbors, uh, to themselves, to their friends, to their family, uh, ultimately to God, than uh, than their own subjective experience of pleasure and pain. Right? I mean, yeah. no, hopefully nobody lives their life thinking that the value of my life or existence is determined simply on the index of pleasure and pain. Yeah. Like, I mean, n- none of us would ever accomplish anything of value if that would if that were the goal. You know, if those if you just if you just live hedonistically for mm-hmm. me, maximize pleasure, minimize pain, and that's my only principle, would be a pretty sorry lot, right? Yeah. That's not the meaning of my life. You know, you can't say this to your neighbor, but my own dad died of Lou Gehrig's disease back in 2020, and he was diagnosed, I think, in 2014. So he had a you know six year convalescence with that debilitating disease and you know the longer it went the less and less function he had until he was completely paralyzed and uh you know i asked him i don't know six months before he died he was in pretty bad shape you know couldn't even lift his little finger i said dad you know you're not you're not going to make it a lot longer um how do you feel about dying and he said well you know i feel like as long as i can be of some value to my family then i want to keep going no matter what and uh and he said you know i don't I don't want to commit suicide, and I don't want my family to become murderers, and uh, and the Lord will take me when he takes me. Yeah. And he recognized that he could have value in life uh, no matter what his subjective condition, and mm-hmm. I deeply appreciated that. And we, you know, we had conversations as a family about what, you know, what is his subjective experience of life, and what is his value to the world and to himself and to us as family. And, of course, I was totally opposed to anything that would hasten his end. That's against church teaching and his dignity. But, you know, from my point of view, I told my dad, I said, look— even if you couldn't speak, and thank God he retained the power of speech, but yeah. I mean, don't, but he did. So even if you couldn't speak, I can come lay my head on your chest. You know, I mean, I, you can be present to me, and I can be present to you in nonverbal ways that are deeply meaningful to me. I mean, profoundly meaningful to me, and and I certainly don't want you to suffer, but um, but don't think for a minute that your presence is not unbelievably significant to me, no matter what your condition. And, and you know, as Catholics, we believe that that dignity is underwritten by God himself, who made us in his likeness and image and mm-hmm. recreated us in the image of Christ. And life is a gift, and it's going to end w- whether we want it to or not. But when we surrender that into God's hands, then we have that opportunity to look at every moment as a gift, no matter what our subjective condition, and try to make the most of it for the love of others and the love of God. God bless you, Susan. We hope that's helpful for you and for your friend as well. Let's go to uh, Larry in Kenosha, Wisconsin, listening on the great WSFI. Larry, we just have a couple minutes here. What's on your mind today? Yes, hi. My question is, and I've been told, for a sin to be a sin, you have to know it's a sin. Best to be grave, and you have to do it intentionally. And that, That's incorrect, anyway. by the way. That's not correct. That's not correct. The- um uh, a, a sin for a sin to be a sin, it has to be uh, an offense against divine or human dignity in some fashion, right? That this it works at cross purposes to the integral organic good of the human person. Now, if I am ignorant of that fact, that doesn't make it morally licit. My my ignorance does not excuse the activity. You know, if I 
if I think that hitting myself in a hammer with in the head with a hammer is a good cure for a headache, that is a lunatic position to take. I may not be culpable, but it's still a lunatic position for me to take a hammer and hit myself in the head if I have a headache. It's really bad for me. Mm, whether yeah. whether or not I'm blameworthy is another question. Okay. So for a sin to be blameworthy, a person needs to understand what they're doing. All right? But for it to be objectively harmful to you, you certainly don't have to know it for it to be objectively harmful. But go ahead, finish your question. Okay, I have a lot of Catholics that I got fixed many, many years ago, and they told me that was a sin, and I don't believe it was. But anyway, uh, it's a different... The other thing I got, just make a little quick comment on, we know how one party believes in abortion at any time, and now... We've got these laws passing, and, and I'm pro-life and uh, Okay, but, but Larry, was that your question? What was your question? I had two of them. I, you, you took two. Oh, okay, go ahead. We just my got second, a minute left. Okay, my second one is the other party now says you can kill this kid up until six weeks or 13 weeks. It's still murder, right or wrong? Catholic position is that every life uh, has dignity, and we cannot intentionally take a human life at any stage from conception to natural death. Okay. And then our screener says, uh, your other question, is it a sin that I had a vasectomy if I don't believe it's a sin? Well, the Catholic position is yes. Yeah, sure. I mean, a, a sin is, a, is an offense against human dignity or divine dignity. It's something that violates the integrity of the human person in some way, is, is, is bodily integrity, is rationality, uh, the natural ends for which God made us. Uh, it's, that's objectively wrong, whether I know it's wrong or not. Now, my, my, my knowledge uh, and rationality, if they're deficient somehow, that may mitigate the guilt that I bear because of this act, but it doesn't stop the act from being objectively harmful. You know, I mean, like my, I had a grandmother who was just a, just an incurable racist. She thought racism was great. She had no moral objections to it at all. Didn't stop it from being an absolutely obnoxious and hateful part of her personality that did her and many other people a great deal of harm. Larry, we hope that's helpful for you for both of those questions. We could not get to a question from George watching us on YouTube in Chillicothe, Missouri. Uh, we're going to hold that over until tomorrow's show. Charles, if you could uh, hold on to that uh, question there, we will do that at the head of uh, tomorrow's program. Dr. David Andrews, thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday here on EWTN, 2 p.m. Eastern for the live show, 11 p.m. for the Encore Eastern Time, 8 p.m. Pacific. On behalf of our great ta uh, team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Andrews. We will see you tomorrow on EWTN's Call to Communion. God bless.